Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. So, in as much as it says take communion or take the Lord's Supper together, we're going to do that at the end here. And uh, it's just part of what they did back then, and they did it from house to house in a, in a more intimate fashion. We think we know probably where they were in this passage when it says they, they gathered together at the temple in a number of places they could have been, but where we think Peter probably was when he gave his great Pentecost sermon was on the teaching steps of the temple area. And uh, they're the same steps today. Uh, they're right there. And one of the reasons we think it would probably happen there was there are mikvahs or ritual pools that are all around this area which is to say when they were baptizing, they went to those ritual pools. And they were ritual in so much as they had water down in them. And they would go in and cleanse their bodies ceremonially. They weren't trying to get clean like we think clean. They were trying to ceremonially ceremonially get clean so they could enter the temple area. But that day they were used for baptism pools. They said, hey, we got some water. Let's dip people down into it. 3,000, if you can imagine. But it said these 3,000 people started getting together. And the thing I wanted to point out today... Uh, was this verse here that it says in verse 46, they were one in the t- one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. There were two kinds of meetings they were happen, happening right after Pentecost. In the temple, big meetings. From house to house, more intimate meetings, small groups. And so right from the beginning, after they got filled with the Spirit, they were meeting in large groups like this, as well as from house to house. To house. And the reason we point that out is that's one of the means of grace when we're talking about works of piety. One of those means was get together. They called it, Wesley called it Christian conferencing, but what he meant was small groups. Get together, get together regularly so you can sharpen one another because the proverb is true. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another person. But you got to get in proximity of them on a regular basis that that kind of thing can happen. And as I've thought back over my life, I got to admit, most of the really great things that have happened in human history, as well as in my life, have happened because of the smaller unit, because of the smaller group. And we're going to try to point that out through this, but I would suggest to you there's power. Edmund Burke said, if you want to know what's great about America, think in terms of two words, little platoons. He says, when people want to get things done here, they get together in small groups and go, man, go. And that's still true. It's still true. Now, this wasn't so much a great thing, but it's memorable in my mind. I was thinking about my life. When has that kind of thing happened really big time? And one of the fun things I remember was when I was age 20, I linked up with a guy named Keith Kephart. And Keith Kephart was one of the great strength coaches uh, in America. And in fact, that year he won strength coach of the year in America. Uh, he was a second recipient. You can, re- you can win it only once. So that meant he was the second greatest strength coach in all the United States. And that's saying something because, you know, when you're at the university setting, that's big time. So anyway, he was that the year I was with him, and he was my, <laughs> he was my workout partner. He invited me into his life. All we had to do was get there at 545 to start lifting. Now, five, five, you think about a college kid getting up at 5.45 every morning, but I knew this was something big time. This was a privilege to be with him, 
And that was before he actually won the award. There was another guy that was with us that played football, professional football, in Canada. His name was Franklin King. And so it was me and, and Keith Kephart and Franklin King. We were three that were put together, starting to work out at 5.45 a.m. every morning of the week, including Saturdays. And so uh, pretty much what we would do is this. Although sometimes they would change the weight, and they'd have to for me because I couldn't bench press. To this day, my bench press is embarrassing. To this day, when I do push-ups, I do them with my knees on the ground. They call those women push-ups. They used to call them women push-ups. Now, a lot of women can do it without knees on the ground. So they don't call them women. They just call them freedom and push-ups now. Uh, if you're a wimp and you can't do push-ups, put your knees on the ground and do them that way. That's what I do. Uh, I just, I got no chest. I got no chest. Some of you remember these, these guys, when I walked in one day, they had a, they were doing this as I walked in at 545. I said, what are you guys doing? He says, we're looking for your chest. <laughs> I said, man, that's just mean. That's no way for a guy to have to start his morning. And anyway, so we go in there. And so when we do a bench press, you know, whatever they did, that's what you were supposed to do. And Kephart had an agenda. And so Franklin King would get in there. Then they'd take off a bunch of weight, and I'd go. <laughs> then they'd put a bunch of weight back on, and Keith would go. And we'd go in a rotation. Now, on squats, that was different. We were all pretty equal squats. Franklin King was probably 50 pounds better. But me and Keith were pretty close. He might be a little under me. But anyway... Whatever he did, we did. And this happened to be a Friday morning, 5.45 a.m. He says, I tell you what, let's just do one set today. I'm thinking, oh, glory, one set. That's great news. It wasn't great news. Keith gets underneath, and he has on there 315 pounds. Now, that's not a lot of weight for th that level of, of thing. Um, but anyway, that's what he has on, 315. I thought, okay. One set with 315 pounds. Ten reps, we'll be out of here like that. Me and then Franklin go, then I'll go. And so he gets underneath the bar. It goes down. Now, I'd like to demonstrate for you. I'm so weak now, I'm afraid I couldn't get up with no weight on my back. Anyway, you'd go down into a squat, and I mean deep into a squat, where this part of your body would be level with your knees or a little bit under. So it's way down there. And my pants might split here in just a moment, so I'm not going to do that. So anyway, you'd go down, all the way down, come all the way up, and so that's one, two, three, all right, ten, good, good, <laughs> me and Franklin are spotting him, we're going, good, but he's going on beyond ten, twenty, Whew. good, okay, that's good, all right, way to go, Keith, that's, we're trying to say it in such a way that, you know, load the bar back on the rack, oh, and he keeps going, we're thinking, uh-oh, he gets to twenty-five and thirty, we're thinking, oh, okay, Keith, we're not cheering anymore. He's just going and going and going. He gets to 40, and we're thinking, oh, no, because all we can think about is we've got to do this now. And he's heaving air in and out, heaving air. Have you ever been there? You heave. You can't get enough oxygen in your body. He's heaving air. And I can only imagine what his thighs are feeling like. And he goes all the way to 50 repetitions. And I'm thinking, how is that even humanly possible? He racks it, and then he just falls out. And we're looking at our hero, the National Strength Coach of the Year, Mr. Central America's actually for bodybuilding. He's a big time. And we're looking at him on the ground thinking, that's us in just a moment. <laughs> I'm thinking, whew, it's my turn next. I'm supposed to go next. So I get underneath the bar, and I'm thinking, this is just this is going to be terrible. 
But I thought, but he did it, so I got to do it. He did it, so I got to do it. So you get the 20, and you start. There's something that happens in your thighs at 20. There, there's a little fire that begins. At 40, it's no longer fire. It's a forest fire. It's a blaze. You're, and, but more than that, what I believe is I'm... <laughs> I mean, I, I can't get enough air. And I'm, I remember at 45 reps, I actually start getting a tear. It hurts that bad. I get a tear going down my cheek. It hurts so bad. But I'm not going to stop because my hero, Mr. Central America, the, the National Strength Coach of the Year, did 50, and he wants me to do 50. And so I did it. And I can't, I can't describe to you what the rest of the day felt like. I mean, I, I'm not sure I went to class. I'm not sure I did anything after that. In fact, I can't remember anything after that. Then Franklin gets up. Now, Franklin's better than we are. He gets to 20, and he says, I'm going to 60. He gets to 30, he says, I'm going to 75. He gets to 40, and he starts moving towards the rack. He's had enough. We take the rack, we take the barbell, and we shove him back off the rack. We won't let him go. And he's breathing just like we were, and he's dying just like we were. But he's got to finish 10 more before he's done, and he does it. And to this day, I count that episode as the greatest athletic thing I've ever been a part of. Three guys doing 50 reps with 350 pounds, full squats. And to this day, when I'm thinking of, hey, have you ever done anything with your life? I can think of, well, married the prettiest redhead in Mississippi, did that. Had six kids, did that. Gave my life to Jesus Christ, did that. And I did 50 reps one day. (laughs) Did that. No way that happens if Keith Kephart is in that gym alone, just doing a set. No way that happens if I decide I want a real big, heavy workout today on my legs. There's no way that three guys could do that together. I'm just going to tell you it's phenomenal, but I will tell you this. It does not happen without the sharpening, without the encouragement, without the yelling. We were yelling at each other. And without saying, no, you're not stopping, get back into it. Y'all, that's the power of small group. It's always been the power of the small group. I remember my spiritual story. I rejected the church at age 12. I said, Mom, never going back there again. And eventually what happened to me at that point was she sends me to a house church. My dad's best friend had a house church. I remember walking up there. It's a 1211 Holland. It's probably about about three quarters of a mile from my house. I remember going by the alleyway right behind their house. As I'm going by the alleyway, I'm looking down, wondering, I wonder what this day is going to be like. What does church in a house even, even feel like? As I'm going by there, somebody said, hey, Matt. I look over, and there is Lorne and his son, Jerry, and two other guys. I think it's Billy Leaper and Randy Swigert. They were playing basketball in the backyard, in the alley. They said, come on. I thought, I like the start of this church service. <laughs> so go, we, we play basketball. After I'm playing basketball, we, uh, we moved into the house, and we started singing. And we all liked to sing. We all thought we could sing. You know, some guys are shy, not like the great show choir of Clinton, you know. We're shy guys. We never sing. Oh, yes, we do. We think we are all Rod Stewart or John Denver or, or Cat Stevens or somebody. We all think we're the best ever. And so Mrs. Doc would be over there playing. He says, Matt, sing this. And I'm thinking, yeah, I betcha. I stand up and sing. And there's great singing that happens that day. We sit on the carpet listening to the gospel proclaimed from an open Bible from an evangelist named Dyke. And then we eat together afterwards. 
And I went home that day and I thought, I don't know if that pleased the Lord or not, but it pleased me. And I began to understand that's what church was back on the day of Pentecost and in the months thereafter. That's what church was. Now, I began to believe over time that probably wasn't enough. You need to be attached to a bigger body as well as have that kind of thing going. If you have only one without the other, some kind of skewedness happens, if you know what I mean. By the way, I don't think there is such a word as skewedness. I just made that up. But you get skewed. Something goes wrong. Uh, You need, I think, something bigger with something smaller. And that's what we want for you at Dayspring Community Church. We've always said we want you to be here regularly, but we also want you to be in a small group. And as much as those, both of those things happen, and other things happen along with them, you're having a devotional time, and you're in a ministry, I mean the power of this church gets unleashed in a special way. Now, I went on to college, and I went to a lot of campus groups, but the where I grew the most is when they broke it down into small groups again. Campus Crusade, for instance, is where I learned how to do a lot of different things because they'd broken it down into small groups. I went to seminary. My first day at seminary, I went up to the door of Alan Coppage. Now, the reason I went up to Alan Coppage, he showed up at a wedding that we had for my sister. And somebody, there's the great Alan Coppage. Big go shake his hand. I said, I think I will then. I understand you're great, sir. I want to shake a hand. Matt Friedman, Alan Coppage. I said, well, Dr. Coppage, I'm probably going to come to seminary someday. He says, good, when are you want to get there? I said, well, I'm redshirting this year, so I'm going to redshirt. Then I'm going to put in another year, you know, and try to break the national record in the discus. Then I'm going to come to seminary. He said something that really irritated me. God's more important than the, sem- or God's more important than the discus throw. I was pretty sure he wasn't right about that. But I thought, well, I don't think you understand. He says, God is more important, is he not? All right. But still, I got a red shirt year. Then I'm all... So he wanted me just to skip the red shirt year and shag boogie to Asbury Seminary to be with him in a small group. Well, I didn't. Did the red shirt year, did the, did, the, did the fifth year. Then I went to Asbury first. I mean, I put down my bags. And then the next 90 seconds after I put down my bags at my dorm room, I was at his door knocking because I wanted in his small group. And y'all, some of the greatest things that happened in my life was when Mary was in Beth Coppage's small group and I was in Al Coppage's small group. In fact, that's kind of how we met. And I would suggest to you, that there's power in getting it there, breaking it down into small groups. And I just became fascinated with discipleship after that. In fact, I got a PhD in discipleship. My dissertation is based on Jesus and the small group. I've basically written a couple books on the subject, established a church that takes this kind of thing seriously, but this is what I'm beginning to believe. We're not taking it seriously enough. I think the Lord's beginning to weigh on my heart, Matt, We've got to do a better job at Dayspring breaking this thing down into small groups where people can sharpen one another for my glory. And so I'm just trying to figure out how we can do that, y'all. It's not enough that you come to church. It's not enough that you tithe. It's not enough that you have a devotional time. We've got to help one another. Someone's going to say, you know, that's just not what I do. I don't really feel called to that kind of thing. In just a moment, I'm going to prove to you from Scripture, you're you're called to it. But I'll try to say another thing to you, and it's this. What if it's not about you? What if somebody needs you to sharpen them, whether you need them to sharpen you or not? 
what if this thing's not about you? What if there's people out there that have to have your sharpening influence? And that's where we're going to go with this thing right now. First off, I want you to know God is a small group. Think about it. God is a small group. We all believe in the Trinity. The Trinity says, says this. There are three persons. There's a Father. There's a Son. There's a Holy Spirit. There are three. They're one. Both things are true. Three in one, so we say. And if that's true, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1.26, he says, Then let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. So God created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But then you got a family that comes from that. And pretty soon, God's saying, this is my image. Yes, it's broken. It's marred. But fundamentally, you all are made in the image of God, which means this. You need other people. Now, that wasn't nearly, uh, uh, didn't strike it quite like I thought it would. Let me do that again. You need other people. Because you're made in the image of God. And there is no Lone Ranger Christianity. We, Marilyn French one time, a great feminist, said in USA Today, somebody says, well, what about Clint Eastwood? You know, he seems to do everything alone. You know what she said? There is no Clint Eastwood. That's a fabrication of Hollywood's mind. That's not God. And I've come to believe that's absolutely right. We've got to be people that suggest to ourselves, we need each other. Just as the God of Israel was three persons in one, he desires his people to reflect him as individuals within a unified body. So here we are, day spring, unified. But he wants us to be more diverse than the unification. He wants his people, plural, and community, unity. Because he is community, three in one, Intimacy among God's people is a reflection of him. He needs us in smaller groups. So the first thing I'll suggest to you is this. Jesus, when he comes to the world, comes through a small group. I was uh, discussing Colossians with, uh, with the Wednesday night group and other groups this week. I said, you got to, everybody says, set your mind on things above. Yeah, above. That's paradise up there. That's a great time up there. I said, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yes, and watch out. Heaven's a place where people get together and decide which of us is going to go down to that sin-sick globe and save it. Which one of us? Jesus says, I guess it's going to be me. I said, well, you know what's going to happen. They're up in heaven now discussing all this. You're going to go down there and uh, they're going to beat the living daylights out of you. They're going to spit in your face. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to take a whip with sharp stuff at the end of it, and they're going to take it across your back, and that alone will be enough to kill you, but you won't die that way. No, they're going to make you carry a cross, put it on a hill, and make you suffer and die. Still want to go? Jesus, it says, emptied himself of all the prerogatives of heaven and came. That's what they do in heaven. They get together and decide who's going to die. I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do I want to go to heaven then? Yeah, believe me, you do. Because I do believe in that thing, paradise. And I believe it's going to be a great place, a place of praise. But I just want you to know that at least one of the things that happened in heaven was that. They decided one day, someone's going to die. How about you? And the Father in heaven said, son, 
This is the hardest thing I have ever done or ever will do, but go. And then Jesus says, now I send the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, we got a movement of God sweeping the globe. I'm going to tell you here, that's part of what it means to be a small group. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for other people. The world is waiting for us, y'all. And so we believe when Jesus comes in the world, how does he do it? He does it through a family. He comes down through a woman who's betrothed to a man, and they have a marriage, and Jesus needs to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And what happens? But that he comes into the world through this woman and through this family now. They have some brothers, and that's how he learns about the faith. That's how he learns about the Father, and indeed that's how he learns about the Holy Spirit as he's in the flesh. And so he goes to synagogue regularly. Now, guys, this is important. Do you think Jesus ever took off because there was a sports game that day on Sabbath. Now, real quick, does he ever, or hey, you know, our favorite sports team is uh, on at 11 a.m. We might not be able to go today. Let's just stay home and watch a sports game. That's not what happens here. Jesus is regularly taken like it matters, like his life depends on it. Listen, if you all, if you decide, I think I'll go to synagogue, church. I think I'll go to church. I don't feel like it. It's kind of cold. I don't think I'll go. I don't think I'll go because, you know, uh, there's a foot of snow out there. I don't think I'll, and all of a sudden now we start building excuses. If you can build some excuses, more will come. And pretty soon you're coming about, oh, I don't know, 90% of the time. Then pretty soon it's 80%. Then pretty soon it's half the time. And pretty soon you have no commitment at all. And you don't know this. You're handing that lack of commitment down to your kids. And if 50%, 60%, 70% is good enough for you, what's going to be good enough for them? I just wanted to be the family that said, hey, listen, we're church-going people. We go all the time. How about when you're on vacation? Especially on vacation. We're going to find some dumpy church somewhere and get inside and praise the Lord together. That's what we do. That's who we are. We don't miss synagogue, says Joseph. And Jesus goes every chance he gets, as was his custom. But it's just not synagogue. He says, listen, we got family rituals that we do. We got Passover meal that we do. We got the Feast of Booths that we do. We got all these festivals talked about in Leviticus 23 that we do as a family. And Jesus learns about Leviticus. Jesus learns about these family rituals as Joseph and Mary takes him through these rituals. And then, twice a day, he hears his father, Joseph, say these words, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus hears this. From the very first time he can remember anything, he remembers his dad saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. They shall... Be a sign on your frontals. They will be on your gates. Everything about you all day long is going to be about the love and the law of God. Joseph says that in the morning. He says it at night. And three times a day, he stops whatever he's doing in his shop, and he points towards the temple. He puts on his prayer cloth. He grabs the tassels, puts them around his fingers, grabs the tassels, puts them around his fingers, and lifts up his hands to Jerusalem, to the God that resides at the temple. And he prays a list of 
we suspect, about 18 benedictions. And Jesus sees this. Joseph prays three times a day, does the Shema twice. Apparently, this is what it means to be a man. It is what it means to be a man. What do your kids learn about what it takes to be a man, to be a woman? What are they learning? And so for Jesus, what he learned in a small group called family is, we are regular synagogue, we do these rituals, we do the Shema, we do the three hours of prayer, and that's what it means for me to be all the man that Yahweh, that my father needs for me to be on planet earth. Now, when Jesus begins to minister, guess what he does? It says in Matthew 4.19, he says to two sets of brothers, follow me. And two sets of brothers do. And right at that point, he goes out there and starts ministering to the marginalized. And then there comes a day when others are called to follow, and he needs to say, now let's get this thing. It's getting a little big. Look, getting a little too big. Let me get this thing down to 12. It says, one of those days, Jesus went up to the mountainside. He spent the night praying. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them. And he designated them as the apostles. It talks about their names. Simon, whom he called Peter. Brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew. Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus. Simon, who was called the Zealot. And Judas, son of James, as well as Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I find that fascinating too. At what point do you think Jesus says, I got a traitor here. We don't ever have as much money as I think we're supposed to have. And nonetheless, he keeps investing in Judas. He keeps investing in Judas. He keeps investing in Judas. You want to know why? Because this is the Christ of the Hesed love. Unfailing love. My favorite way to put it is obstinate love. He just doesn't give up. Now I know what some of us will say, yeah, well, whatever. He's Jesus, I'm not. Well, he calls you to be like him for whatever it's worth. But that, that one irritating guy I got in my group, I just, I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the stupid stories. I'm tired of him always bringing up that subject. I'm tired of him and his nasty chewing food with his mouth open thing. I'm tired of it. Yeah, well, he probably won't betray the Son of God. So I think it's probably okay to keep investing in him too. The whole point here is we stay obstinate. In John 17, he finally prays over these 12. He says, my prayer is not for them, not for them alone anyway. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So they are a sent people. They're going to be a sent people. And our small groups here at Dayspring Community Church, we're not created for this church. We're created for the people outside the church. Finally, this, Jesus inspires the formation of small groups when he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. The last thing he says in the Gospel of Matthew. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And know this, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Go, he says, and make disciples. Now, I doubt any one of them had a question. Hmm, what's it mean to make disciples? They'd just been through it for three years. They knew what it meant to make disciples. They had been made into a disciple. 
So they knew exactly what this thing was all about. That's why you see in Acts 2, they're breaking it down into smaller groups, investing in one another, sharpening one another. Why? Because a hurting world out there that has to have us sharp, has to have us encouraged, have to have us bolstered, have to have us doing 50 reps when we know we can only do 10. A hurting world out there needs that. And Jesus says, I need for you to make sure you are like that for me and for my cause. C.S. Lewis has this book called The Great Divorce. And it's all just kind of interesting stuff. And at the end, it all ends up being just a dream. But in that book, he pictures hell as the great expansion of increasing space between angry people. What is hell like? Hell is a bunch of angry people who keep moving further and further away from one another because they can't stand each other. Heaven, what's that like? Heaven is the place where persons move toward the light, and when they're moving toward the light, they're moving toward one another and getting closer to one another on their journey toward the horizon. And I'm thinking, that's some kind of brilliant. Because the world doesn't want anything to do with each other at the end of the day. And Christians say, even if I don't feel like I like it, I know it's necessary. I'm seeking the light and coming closer to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Ecclesiastes says it like this. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fail, one will lift up the other. Oh, no, Franklin King, you're not equitting. But woe to the one who's alone that falls. And doesn't have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? Though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Edmund Burke says, if you want to know what the greatness of America is all about, if you want to know how to change the world, think two words, little platoons. And I don't know. But there's some guys back in 19th century England that said, we believe it. So let's get together. And they called it the Clapham sect. Sect is just another word for small group. The Clapham sect. And the Clapham sect came together and says, you know, let's look out at the world and see what God doesn't like. Anybody think he likes slavery? And they said, no. And we, the Clapham sect, are going to make sure it's eradicated from England and they did. Do you think God likes poverty? We're going to fight poverty. And they did. This Clapham sect, one of the most famous people in that was a guy named William Wilberforce. But what he started thinking, like all the rest of them start thinking, was God has given us some power and he's given us some influence, not for ourselves. Wilberforce could say, and he's given me a whole bunch of money. But that money's not mine. It belongs to Jesus and his causes in the hurting lonely, wicked people of England. And he used his life for that reason. And so did the Clapham sect. It's amazing what that little group did. And y'all, it's still true. God still wants to do that kind of thing. I'm going to tell you, every time there's a revival in the world, it's broken down into small groups. One day, guy on a horse sees another guy on a horse. And uh, one of the guys on a horse was maybe the greatest preacher who ever lived, a guy named George Whitfield. And Whitfield, on the horse, looked over at a guy named John Smith, and he says, John, are you still a Methodist? Are you still with Wesley? And he says, I am, and I'm proud to be one of his preachers. 
And Whitfield all of a sudden kind of loosened up. Whitfield was kind of a humble guy, actually. Uh, in fact, one of his disciples came up to Whitfield, and Whitfield and Wesley are having a great debate across about a, a decade or two, and, and they're really struggling with one another. And at that point, someone come up to, to Whitfield and says, you think we'll see Wesley in heaven? And Whitfield looked down and says, nope. He's going to be so close to the throne of God, and we at such a distance, I don't think we'll get a glimpse of the guy. Put the disciple right in his place. But he said, my brother Wesley, John, John, you're in the right place. He says, my brother Wesley acted wisely. The souls that were awakened in his ministry, he joined together in groups, classes, bands, and he preserved the fruit of his labor. Now, the greatest preacher, maybe in human history, then said this. This I neglected, and my people are as a rope of sand. Now, how would you like to be the greatest preacher ever lived? You're kind of getting pretty certain you probably are the greatest preacher ever lived. Everybody says so. And guess what they do? They come in droves, 10,000 people at a time, 15,000 people, 20,000 at a time, just to hear your voice, so good are you. And at the end of it, you call your disciples a rope of sand because you didn't do what the Bible obviously told you to do, and that's break things down into small groups. Wesley did it. He had a revival, and he had a great and tremendous influence across a few centuries. Whitfield did not, and his influence ebbed away. Y'all? It's very important for us to realize this is a God thing. It's a Wesleyan thing, but it's an everywhere you see revival thing if we want to take that kind of thing seriously. Let me just say this. I saw years ago, I don't know why I was reading, I don't know where I was, but I read Wired Magazine. Is that a thing? I don't even know. Doesn't sound Christian, but anyway, Wired. In Wired Magazine, they had an article trying to explore why Alcoholics Anonymous is so beneficial. They looked at this thing, they looked at that thing. But they said this, despite all that we've learned over the past few decades about psychology, neurology, and human behavior, contemporary medicine has yet to devise anything that works any better. So the question is, why does AAA help so many people? It's because they get things down in small groups, just like our Celebrate Recovery does. We get things down into small groups. Why? So that a group of like-minded friends who have similar problems can offer support, honesty, and accountability. And the article described how honest sharing in a small group of supportive people heals. And by the way, the guy that came up to that, a guy named Bill, Bill only read the book of James where it says, confess your sins one to another. You know what the arrogant guy says? I'm just confessing my sins to God. I don't need anybody else. Dude, if you want what God wants for you, you want other people. Because he himself says in the book of James, confess your sins to other people with skin on because that brings healing. Do you want healed? And so I think Dayspring, like most other churches, has lost our mojo during COVID on a lot of areas that we've been pretty good at. One of them is small groups. And we've been slacking because it's been easy to slack, been easy to make excuses. And, you know, even if it wasn't a serious excuse, we could say, you know, I don't feel very well. I don't want to hand it on and yada, 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 yada. 
And I get it. I understand it. And to a large degree, it's true. It's been a tough two years. But finally, you got to say, it's over. If it's not over for everybody else, it's over for me and my people. I'm getting together in a small group because that's where Jesus wants me to be. That's where Jesus found himself. And even in heaven right now, there's a group of three going, Father, Son, and Spirit, having communion one with another. And if it's good enough for God, he says, I want you to be holy as I am holy. I need for you to be in smaller groups. Now, there's two things I'd like to remind you of. At Dayspring, we'd like everybody to be in a home group, a home fellowship. Uh, Mr. Bill actually has one that meets here. We have one that meets on Thursday night at my house. And if you'll just look in your program, you'll see the listings. And you're thinking, but I don't like any of those. Again, let me get back to this major point. It's not whether you like it or not. Maybe other people need you. So I'm going to say, we need to get down to those small groups because it's Jesus, it's Wesley, it's everywhere there's ever been a revival, it's day spring. This is what we do. This is who we are. We need to get things down small groups. You think, well, I just don't want to get around other people because who knows, this COVID thing. Zoom. <laughs> you ever heard of Zoom? You think, oh, that's not a real small group. Stop it. I've been meeting in Zoom groups, two different groups, Every week of my life, two different groups for eight years. One been meeting eight years, the other one been meeting eight years. And you tell those guys they're not good groups. They know they're good groups. They know those groups have changed their lives. So I'm going to say we need to get down. And I would love this. Those people think, and I want something even deeper and more profound than that. I'd say be in a small group and then say, hey, pastor, how can you get me into a 5Q group? A 5Q group is five questions. It's a discipleship pattern that's much more intense than simply a small group. And I would suggest to you those 5Q groups are beginning to change a, a substantial section of the world. There's 60 of those groups meeting in house churches all over Mexico right now. There's bunches of them in Nairobi, other parts of Africa. There's all over America that are being used. And guys, Dayspring devised that. We did that here five questions and say, listen, I want to ram home these questions against my life so I can be all that Jesus wants me. On the back side of the card, it has the works of piety and the works of mercy, and I want to do those things too. I would love, there's a sign-up sheet out here. If you're not in a small group, sign the sign-up sheet. Let's get you in a small group. If you're not in a 5Q group, let me tell you when those typically meet. I like to do this when I'm telling you when they meet. 6 a.m. 6 a.m. If I had to do those things at 5.45, at least we could do that at 6. Or Saturday morning. And we're going to start some new groups. They've never been in together with one another yet. But if you could get in a group with your pastor one of those times, and pretty soon we'd hand it off to some leadership within the group. Those are five Q disruption groups. Two things I'm asking of you right now. Let's get our mojo back with small groups. Number one, Let's get in home cells. And number two, let's get in 5Q groups, one or the other, or both, both if you really want to go for God and grow deeper than you've ever grown. I'm just telling you, it works. We can have some women's groups. We can have some men's groups. Whole point is this. This is not enough. They didn't think it. After the Holy Spirit fell, they knew they had to have something more than this. And so they made it happen. You need to make it happen.
for you and your family, for your church.